Welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Do the math, cause we're back and we're glad to rebirth. I'm the meanest rap phoenix back speaking at demons. I'm the cleanest at the zenith of Bitcoin. It's that scenic. Yo, I'm dedicated, ready made to star. Meditative, levitated, yo, steady raise the bar. Cause I'm deadly on the mic, but I'm better with the pen. But yo, it's time for Galaxy Brains. Let's begin. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. Welcome to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show today. We're talking with Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, about markets. A meaningful material move in crypto asset markets up since we last spoke. We'll get into why. Also talking with Saul Kadir from Galaxy Research about Solana and NFTs. What is next for that ecosystem following FTX's collapse? And we'll check in with Charles Yu from Galaxy Research about Optimism and Arbitrum, the two optimistic rollups that are gaining a lot of steam on Ethereum. But before we get into all of that, I need to tell you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer on the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast constitutes an investment advice or an offer, recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. That's it. We got the disclaimer out of the way. Let's hop right into it. Let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm feeling good. We're like since we last talked last week, it's been a material rally in crypto assets. Yes, it has. It's been a I mean, very fun journey. And now month over month, I think as of today, this is Wednesday, uh, what, January 18th? I, mm-hmm. I think. Is it the 18th? I didn't screw that up. I think so. Today is Wednesday, January 18th. Month over month, Bitcoin and Ether basically both up 30%. Yeah. It's a pretty material um, uplift. I mean, you can see the block clock behind me says 20, we're over 20,000 in Bitcoin uh, for the first time since pre-FTX. Um, so we've, what, retraced the SBF dump? Yeah. I would argue that um, it's just catch up to traditional markets. Right. You know, traditional markets basically since, you know, mid to late October, um, early November have just been on a one-way tear. Right. Since that uh, CPI mm-hmm. missed to the downside, yep. which was right around, right no, after it FTX. The, it was the same day. Yeah. Uh, NASDAQ was right. ripping like, you know, four plus percent, five, six. It was, it was up like six percent on the day as Bitcoin was collapsing. Right. Um, and it's only been going higher ever since as well. Uh, with the exception of today. Um, and so, you know, there's a huge catch up. And you look at things like gold, right? Gold went from 1650 around the same time to yeah. 19,000 uh, or 1920, right. right? You know, other sort of dollar proxies, euro, you know, went from uh, about one to 108, right? So you've had huge moves in traditional markets. And the dollar and cr- DXY has come down over yeah. that time, too. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, making the same way euro. For it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, I do think there's an element of this that is just catch up to traditional markets, dollar weakness, U.S. equities higher. Yeah. Um, there's an element that is base effects, right? There's a lot of cryptos that are just they you were know, so sold, low. sold off uh, so much. Like Down ninety percent, like a you know going up a hundred percent after that's easy. It's super easy, yeah, yeah. especially. Uh, and then you had uh, you know just a sheer amount of like liquidations right yeah. from the short side you know you're probably from what we saw in exchanges you're probably looking at at least 500 million dollars of, of of liquidations if not more um and then i i just think when you think about crypto down at such low levels like if you're playing it from the short side like what are you really playing for 
right? right? You think Bitcoin's going to go Bitcoin, from 16 to 10? Like, yeah, that's, that'd really be a material. Tough. Yeah, if, if, you know, if FTX and the slew of things that Happen. had happened this year in crypto couldn't take us below 15.5, what, what on earth... <laughs> It's yeah. going to take us b- right. below there. Right. I, I mean, it would have to be well, like Binance. That's like, what I was going to say. Being because totally fraudulent. Just a few minutes not. ago, right? Yeah. They're not, as far as we know. I mean, I, and we're, I think, you know, but just a few minutes ago, um, the Department of Justice, th- this morning, they had said that they were set to make a, a crypt, take a cryptocurrency action. They would announce at noon. Yeah. It's like 1230. Uh, so a few minutes ago. And of course, you know, there's been talk. Um, there was some Reuters reporting, in, uh, you know, weeks ago that I think the journals reported on this too that, like there was a dispute among like U.S. Uh, regulators and law enforcement about like what to do with Binance, like the and so there's been this hangover on Binance that there could be some kind of action. Yeah. Um, and so I think the market assumed that it must be Binance, but it turned out what was it? It was a, a Russian exchange. I, I can't. I, I don't know how to say it. Bitslato. Bitslato or some something along those lines. So it wasn't Binance. It wasn't Binance. It did start with a B though. Yeah, and it was like um, you know there was a press conference. There was a, a press conference, um, so, and, and I'll say I, I mean obviously there was some shady stuff going on with the exchange, but the, cynic, like it, the yeah. cynic in me was like. The government just wanted to do a press conference and say the words Russia, China, and crypto and take a victory lap about something. The, the only way this would have been like <laughs> better was, is if they planted some trees and got some carbon offsets. Like, I don't know how else. <laughs> yeah, it's a good story for the government, yes. given like the like, war in Ukraine and the yep. geopolitics. And, and they, it, did, they seized the domain. They did that yep. thing where they put up a graphic on the website. Now, this, to be clear, I don't think you mm-hmm. probably didn't. This is a, an, a Russian-based crypto exchange that I've never heard of. I've never heard I of mean, it That's either. why we were chuckling a little bit, because like the, annou- the pre-announcement made it seem like, oh, this is going to like and i think crypto markets were a little bit jittery leading into this announcement but it turned out that like no one's ever even heard of this thing yeah um, no i mean bitcoin went from 21,000 like 400 to 20,500 pretty quickly right um you did have uh, an s&p sell off of, of material magnitude separate from this separate from time. this at the same time so it didn't help liquidity um and so you know you did see a bit of retracement um However, you know, we, we went right back up uh, the moment the, the market right. realized it wasn't Binance. <laughs> um, I do think that, you know, the kind of biggest thing I'm, I'm, I'm focused on this year is um, sort of, or to start the year, is, is the January effect. You know, folks that are benchmarked to crypto and have to invest in crypto, uh, they're probably underweight um, and are therefore underperforming the, the broader market. So in theory, that makes them, you know, kind of forced buyers into this market. You can't be a crypto manager um, and tell your investors that you're not keeping up with crypto performance this year um, just because, you know, they probably stuck stuck with you um, through last year. And so, um, you know, I kind of do think that that there are going to be continued dip buyers and you are going to get more and more folks FOMOing into um, you know, Bitcoin, especially the macro types. You know, I think there's a lot of momentum behind the dollar weaker trade. Um, and part of that is is just Bitcoin. Yeah, one way to express it well is Bitcoin. Absolutely. I've also looked at, um, I was looking at some on-chain data for Bitcoin. And, um, you know, one of the things I like most is looking at, uh, at what price coins uh, last moved. It's yeah. the simple way of saying it. Really, UTXOs last created for our 
or, or you know, more like technical Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, because it sort of gives you an idea of like on-chain cost basis. Now, you know, I can send you, send a coin to myself or, or to you that's not a sale and yeah. that would mess the metric up. But there was a huge pile, other than literally zero to $600, meaning like Satoshi's coins, um, which is still the biggest cohort because there's a lot of coins that like have never moved or haven't moved in 10 years. Other than that, 16, like five to 17, two is the largest percentage of supply. Um, so a strong base basically was created down there. Um, and what I'd like to see for this to, to, for me to get more and more comfortable, I think there's many ways to think about this, but if we hang around these levels for long enough, you'll start to see that base move there and start to form a nice stronger base around 20. Right. And that's sort of how, I mean, I, I've got yeah. versions of this data that I've pulled at different times throughout the year last year. I mean, it, this looked a lot different. There's basically very few coins that last moved at prices higher than today. Right. Like most of those coins from like the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s essentially were already sold. Right. Yeah. Certainly moved technically. Yes. But I think it's a decent heuristic. No, I think that's totally fair. And the other thing to think about is, you know, just the, the pace of the move you had that happened mainly, um, you know, between Friday, New York close and you know, Saturday, Asia open. Right. Uh, or, or like the overnight session. It was fast. It was super fast, and it gave very few folks an opportunity to actually buy in. Yeah. Right. So if you were constructive of the space, you wanted to get a little bit of capital on to start the year, basically you missed, you know, a 10, 15% of, of a move. Uh, on an illiquid, like post Friday close. This is why, and like, so nobody's had an opportunity to really buy this right. uh, back out on any dip. And so I, I do think Bitcoin's going to be supported. Um, and I think your case about, you know, the cost basis ma makes sense. But the other thing to think about is, right, like these low cost basis Bitcoin or, you know, anything that has remotely like a good average fill level, like you have huge tax implications when you try to sell this stuff. And so, you know, they're like, like if I'm long a lot of crypto, um, like, and I know that if I want to get less long, I have to take a huge tax bill. I'm just going to stick. Especially if you're generally still long, like, it, yeah. like you know, in your thesis. Um, it also tells me too the fact that people feel like they missed this move is like, well, we were down in those levels for several months. Like you had but it time. Just, it was just like I know bad there was, news after I know bad news afraid. after bad news. I know. Um, and really, it's uh, it's just so tough. I mean, to think I get about it. it, it was a lot of bad news. It was a lot of bad news. But th think about it from from this standpoint. Who wants to go like 100% risk on to start the year <laughs> after the year we just had? It's an it's I know. It's an impossibly yeah. decision to make, right? Like you have to either be super irrational or like crazy genius level. Like either zero IQ or like 200 yeah, to, to kind it, of make that decision. Well, it makes sense. It's that left curve, right curve mm -hmm. meme, right? I mean, we're... Uh, it's pretty funny, though, to think about it that way. Um, it's like, I'm going to go gung-ho, max risk on crypto, <laughs> Chan 1. Well, that's a bright thing to do. Um, right. But it turns out. Well, that's what's funny, to your point about, like, the catch-up trade and, like, the benchmarking to BTC. If you're Most, I think, a lot of funds, crypto, like, liquid funds, benchmark against Bitcoin is probably the most common. Then some maybe against ETH, some newer ones, but also a lot against like indexes, right? Like the yeah, BGCI crypto and, index or and, whatever. And, and like honestly, if you're benchmarked to, if you are benchmarked to Bitcoin, ETH, or the in particular, you almost, but you invest in other altcoins, you mo you probably underperformed. Um, 
Yeah. Or if it, maybe if you're against the index, it's a little bit better because the index is more diversified, right? Um, but that's that's really interesting. And uh, okay, just a couple more minutes. Um, so we got Fed in like two weeks and mm. beginning of Feb. Um, but w- what do we got like on the macro side? Any what's the economic data you're looking at in the next couple of weeks, or you know what's what are you thinking here, macro? Well, we had retail sales come out today. Um, you know, it showed that spending in December. Uh, was particularly weak from from the U.S. Con- consumer. That's good, right, for uh, inflation, right? No, that is good for inflation. Theoretically. Um, in theory. But again, it's, consumption is 60 to 70, 70% of the U.S. economy. So whenever you see consumption slow down, um, that's generally like, hey, markets, like pay attention to this. Cause it's Could a be really... weakness in the general economy. Absolutely. And if you listen to like you know, the credit card companies or the bank types, you know, they tell you the U.S. consumers, you know, right now eating into savings and stuff. Yeah, and like and credit so, card level, debt mm-hmm, levels are very are, high. Uh, credit card levels are, are, are rising. Yeah. Um, you know, the delinquency rates are kind of rising a little bit, but they're, they're still very low. Um, and so basically you play out the current market for the next six months. The U.S. consumer might not be in such great shape. And that's kind of what the, the the retail sales data, you know, showed us today a little bit. Um, and you also had, you know, the producer price index data series um, today um, that showed softness in, in prices. Um, but I, I really, like, the thing I hate about these economic metrics is they're all backward looking, right? right. This is, we're talking, this is Jan 18, we're talking about what people did in December, Right. Which seems like a long time ago, by seems the way. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, but at the same time, like, what do we know about, like, Jan 1 to Jan 17 or Jan 18? Gas prices have started to rise again. Commodities have started to rise. Copper went on a, a tear to start the year. Things like aluminum, you know, have, have been trading higher. So that producer price index that was really soft this morning, you know, from next, December. From December, yeah. like, you're already like, hmm, oh shit. Well, this is probably going to be higher. Right. Um, and then the, and so, you know, I'm trying to focus on more of the high frequency data points like that Adobe, uh, price series that, that comes out, you know, a couple of days before CPI, um, other metrics a- along those lines. And, you know, even the fed admitted this recently, um, where yeah, there was some paper where they were like, we totally underestimated, uh, the usefulness of like soft data, sur- like soft data, which is like survey data yep. instead of like hardcore, like, you Economic know, what, BLS uh, type data. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like anecdotal survey type, type of stuff. Um, and so I think that's really important to, to kind of pay attention to going forward. Now, what I'll say is the Fed has gotten really smart about this stuff and you, people like to shit on the Fed all the time, but let's not get it twisted. They're like a bunch of like Ivy League PhDs with a bunch of really smart people working underneath them. And they talk to a bunch of industry folks and smart contacts all the time. So, you know, yes, they messed up on inflation, but they're also some of the savviest people on on, on markets. Yeah. And what Bullard said this morning was knowing what he knows now, all the forward looking indicators, high frequency points, blah, 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 all that stuff. He's like, we got to take rates to 525 to 550 which is very aggressive. The current market pricing is only 490. Yeah. So his four is, you know, 35 basis points above what the market's telling you. And he's saying, you know, the reason he's he's saying it is because God forbid in inflation, you know, takes back up again. In the, at some point he later this year. He wants to stamp year. it out. Tamp he, it down. he wants just the insurance policy yeah. because 
think about it this way. Let's say you're at 525 basis points in interest rates in the U.S. Shit starts to go downhill and we get nervous. Well, there's 500 basis points of cutting you can have, like to get right back to where you and said you, you might be. Start printing money again. And I see. It's like it's like what are you really scared that cushion. of? It's the reverse knowing of... that you could take mortgage rates from you know six percent and change right now to three percent overnight. Right. And all of a sudden, housing activity right. will start to pick back Basically, up. Basically, like they can if they overshoot to they the overshoot. upside, it just gives them more cushion when they need to come down. It's kind of like the opposite when they were rates were already so low, like into COVID and stuff. Yeah. That it was like they had nowhere to go. Like yeah, they, they, they could, could barely do higher. anything. Yeah. Um, and they were they remember this back when they were talking about we were talking about this back when they were talking not the Fed, but like commentators were like, What if they, they would have to go negative? Yeah. Other oh, central banks worldwide yep. were like, Maybe we'll we'll go to negative interest rates. Oh, um, man, fun times. NERP instead of ZERP. Yes, the, yes, um, yes. All right, well, uh, this is great. Bimnet, as always, our friend. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Thank you so much. Let's go to Charles Yu from the Galaxy Research team. Hey, Chuck, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Great, good to have you here in studio for the first time. A, a multi-time Galaxy Brains guest, but the first time here in our physical studio. What do you think? That's eh, not Got bad. Got some nice accoutrements stuff. We're there. Um, I want to talk to you about roll-ups, uh, specifically the optimistic variety. There's zero-knowledge and optimistic roll-ups, and we've talked a little bit with Christine Kim from our team on the podcast about the zero-knowledge variety, which are sort of still a ways out, I think, in development. But optimistic roll-ups are already here. Um, what is, before we get, jump into this, and you, you've done some work on optimistic roll-ups, You're gonna, you have a report coming out on them, but what are roll-ups in general? Yeah, so rollups are Ethereum's um, go-to scaling solution. Um, it seems like it's the one that they're pretty committed to at this time. Um, and how they work is uh, users um, submit transactions, they're executed off-chain, um, and then a data aggregator um, or sequencer in this case, they publish um, you know, the call data of all these transactions just so that um, anyone has the data available to reconstruct um, all the transactions that happened off-chain. Okay, so they batch up the transaction information, post it to mainnet Ethereum. Correct. And then um, what what is the optimistic, what does that mean? What is that part of this? Yeah, so between optimistic rollups and ZK rollups, um, the key difference between the two is basically when they choose to pay the cost of verification. Um, with optimistic rollups, they choose to delay it. Um, they'll post the minimum amount of data that's required to reconstruct all the transactions. Um, and only in the case if um, someone raises a dispute against what the sequencer posts um, will they have to re-execute all the transactions. I see. Um, ZK rollups, on the other hand, they'll post the proof of all the verification upfront with every single transaction batch. So. The term optimistic, I guess, then is um, that the system, the, the the community optimistically assumes that the data is valid and that the transactions were done correctly, and they don't, unless uh, a challenge is raised, basically. Right. So the op that's the optimistic part of that language, right? Basically, best case scenario. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so, um, and but that means there's a challenge period, right? So like a zk. Roll up theoretically will settle immediately, but technically there's a window for people to raise those disputes on an optimistic roll up, right? Right. Um, I mean, you get into this kind of notion of 
transaction finality, like when does it actually occur. Um, for rollups, for ZK rollups, it's whenever transaction batches are submitted to the base layer. Right. Um, but there is this challenge period that is open for anyone to dispute those transactions. But for the most part, because all the data is posted on chain, um, all of it does go into like the layer one like inbox, so to speak. Like it's basically finalized whenever a transaction batch is submitted with a ZKR well, with an optimistic. Oh, okay. But and but theoretically, though, you could treat it as finalized when it's posted, an optimistic, a batch of optimistic rollup transactions. But three days later, someone could challenge. Yeah. But if it's legit, then it would stay anyway. Exactly. It would only be if it was like faked or whatever. Yeah. And they do have this notion of, uh, of penalizing people um, for whoever is the lying party, whether it's the one who's disputing the transaction or the batch um, transaction submitter. Um, so, you know, it's if the system's working correctly, then um, the economic penalty will probably deter any malicious parties from, from doing Got so. Got it. Okay. So. The ZKR is not here really yet, um, but optimistic rollups are here. What are the big optimistic rollups on Ethereum today? Uh, today we got Optimism and Arbitrum. Okay, so two, and, and people are using these uh, like a lot? Like what's going on on these things? Yeah, I mean, we're getting there. Um, before the year started, we're seeing daily active users of under like 10,000. Um, now, by the end of the 2022, um, that's closer to 60,000. So six times, over six times the levels that we saw um, before everything started. But the way I kind of think of it, when compared to like other networks out there, like you kind of have like two tiers of blockchains when it comes to user activity. Um, first tier, probably Ethereum, BSC, uh, Polygon, Solana. And then you have the second tier of, of uh, I guess, like aspiring networks. And that's where I would group Arbitrum and Optimism. Got it. Um, and what types of stuff can you do on these? I mean, what, are we talking about like DeFi, like what, NFTs? Like what, what are people doing today on Arbitrum and Optimism? Yeah, so I mean, with optimistic rollups, you have everything that you have on Ethereum available. So all the big popular applications, most of them are already on Optimism and Arbitrum. Um, but in addition to that, you have a lot more games, you have a lot more, I guess like retail applications. Um, just because transactions are so much cheaper on an L2, it makes sense to to launch different products for different kind of users. Got it. So is, is it faster too? Are they faster um, if you stay inside? Leaving like finality on L, on the L1 aside, like is throughput higher? Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts about actually like using L2s is that the transaction confirmations that you're getting are just so much faster. Okay. So that opens up other use cases then, I guess. What about like um, wasn't Reddit doing something with Arbitrum like uh, one of their Reddit has what they're like uh, they're, they don't call them NFTs but they're like their collectible badges or whatever their community points community points yeah that's right um, yeah Arbitrum Nova is Arbitrum's dedicated like gaming and social platform also um, a roll up yeah it yep. runs on the same tech stack but just uh, makes some sacrifices along security to provide more cheaper and like faster experience Got for, it. for games. Um, yeah, that successfully migrated over to, to Nova, I think late August, maybe um, September. But Interesting. Yeah, it's out there. And like when we think about the future of rollups, um, 
because this is what this is really scaling. This is a scaling solution, right? These are and and unlike uh, say a side chain, these are inexorably tethered to the L1, right? Like they can't exist without an L1 to publish to, right? So like whereas a side chain is kind of just like a blockchain of its own with its own validator set or depending on how it's run consensus mechanism that sort of like I guess the way I think of it is a side chain is its own blockchain but it pledges fealty to another blockchain. Right. Or just but it doesn't have to. heavy reliance on it. Heavy yeah. reliance. Yeah. Yeah. So like a polygon, the polygon mainnet. I mean, there's many polygon projects, including, um, I think, several ZK projects. But the main polygon that we know of, right, is a side chain on ETH. But right. like it could publish or peg in and out to something else if it wanted to. Right. I mean. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like all of the rollups like technically could spin off and become their own L1s. Interesting. But okay. And then how, like, what about like centralization on these things, right? I hear a lot about like the sequencers aren't decentralized yet, right? These sequencers are the entities that actually roll up the transactions into a batch and post them on the L1. Theoretically, they're kind of like what? They're sort of like block producers, basically. Um, are they decentralized today? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, all the sequencers are run like centrally by the operating team at this point um and to be fair like sequencing is sounds like it is like a pretty technical challenge yeah um but for optimism like they're taking the approach that all the revenue that is generated by the sequencer they're committing back to um the community to fund different grants programs but is there there's got to be plans to try to decentralize that over time right in some way or at least ideas to do it eventually yeah, yeah. um like Arbitrum is a little more ahead because they added a, a couple other like validators, um, you know, different providers, also big centralized entities, but um, but they do have like a whole slate of, uh, of validators that, that could hop in. Got it. Um, and then like what happens if like ZK rollups like come out, um, you know, I think like in earnest um, and let's say the market says they're like definitely better overall than optimistic ones, theoretically. Does that is this like a market share game like optimistic works today? So like you grow so big like will they stay big even if technically a better solution comes out? But like, you know, like it's like, a, you know, um, like TCP IP wasn't like theoretically it's not theoretically the best way to do Internet package package packet exchange, but it has it it, it won. Right. It was a, it's good enough and it's a technical standard. Do you think that's what happens with optimistic or do they end up having to themselves turn into ZKRs or do ZKRs overtake optimism and Arbitrum? Like, how do you think that plays out? If we assume that ZKR technology works and is good. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, well, all the rollups today, all the optimistic rollups, they do have a call option to convert to a ZK rollup at some point. Um, but even if ZK rollups come out and technology is the exact same or even better, like it's going to, have to be like five to ten times better than optimistic rollups on the usability side. Like technology could be way better, but if you actually want to migrate users over from optimistics to ZK, then technology or the usability has to get there. And right now, I don't think too many of them have MetaMask support. Um, a lot of them require different wallet types that people are unfamiliar with. And so like you'll have your early adopters, the people that are really interested in the different types of technologies available by ZK rollups, but 
you know, if you want to win over from optimistic rollups, like, A, you're going to have to see a lot more adoption before things get more economical. Um, and B, you're going to have to play the marketing game against them and interesting launch some incentives or something to, to get people. So they, the optimistic ones could be sticky because they've got all these users and stuff is happening. Yeah, I'd say so. And one thing that really surprised me about these two, um, optimi Optimism and Arbitrum, um, it seems like all the different growth initiatives launched between the two. Um, Arbitrum had their own Galaxy campaign uh, called Not related to, to us. Yep, not related. <laughs> um, Optimism had their token launched. They had their ecosystem fund. They launched their own Galaxy initiative um, just to get people trying different applications and using the chain. Um, all the growth has really been symbiotic between the two. Like anytime you see a spike in usage on one chain, like you'll see it on the other. Like even though some of these initiatives are one-sided. So, you know, users are interested and it's super easy to switch between the two networks. And um, yeah, I'm here for it. Charles Yu from Galaxy Research. Thank you so much, Chuck. Quick break for our listeners. There's a poll posted to our Twitter handle at GLXY Research. Check it out. The question is if or when zero knowledge rollups, particularly ZK EVMs, launch on Ethereum, what happens to optimistic rollups, Arbitrum, and Optimism? One, they lose market share to ZKRs. Two, they keep market share because they're sticky. Three, they grow their share because they have a head start, they're easy to use. Or four, they themselves convert to zero knowledge rollups. Hit us up on Twitter, make your voice heard. Uh, now let's get to the show. We're going to talk with Saul Kadir from Galaxy Research about Solana. Welcome, Saul Kadir uh, from the Galaxy Research team. How are you doing? Great to have you back. Uh, great to be here. Doing well. Um, it's been a really interesting start to the year in crypto. Um, a lot of a lot of positive price action. I oh mean, yeah, Bitcoin and ETH are up like thirty percent year to date. I was saying year to date, we're doing great. <laughs> um, but I want to talk to you specifically about two topics which you cover very closely, specifically sure. Solana and NFTs in general. Um, but I know the stories uh, are a little bit intertwined as well. But first. Let's yep. talk about Solana. And, um, you know, a lot of people were very down on Solana following FTX's blow up, right, uh, right. collapse or whatever we want to call it, the FTX saga. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, what was the intertwining nature? <laughs> What's the relationship between Solana and FTX? It's a great question. I think there's kind of two schools of thought about it, what the perception was in public and what actually what the relationship was in reality. And the perception was that FTX was really tight with Solana. They're very coupled with the ecosystem. They you know, traded the Solana perps. They had a bunch of coins on the exchange. They were investors in a variety of Solana projects, uh, both FTX and Alameda. And so perception-wise, a lot of people assumed, oh, if FTX is going down, that means Solana is going down because they're like a big uh, steward of their ecosystem. In reality, though, it's a little bit more nuanced. And I think a lot of people kind of miss this. Uh, yes, FTX and SBF in particular were important early on in Solana's growth and development. And really, it comes down to uh, Serum, the invention of Serum that was created by FTX kind of devoting about five or so engineers to build it out. Which is what, like a decentralized exchange? 
Uh, so Serum is like, it's like a decentralized exchange, but the main innovation is they put the order book on-chain. Um, so on-chain club is what they call it. Central limit order book. So not not not, not an AMM. Not an AMM. So a de- a, a, it should be like a DLOB, a decentralized yeah. limit order book. <laughs> but actually an order book, and I guess the idea was making use of Solana's high transaction throughput. Exactly. Actually made that possible. Exactly right. It's It's only could be built on something like Solana. And so... Early on, Solana Labs and FTX kind of worked together to put out Serum. Um, and then and in the first kind of year or so around that time, uh, SBF would promote Solana on his personal Twitter account. All that engagement really started to trail off, though, and he hasn't really talked about it. You know, one year prior to the FTX collapse, he barely even spoke of it. And Serum became its own self-sustaining project. Uh, certainly, you know, FTX still invest in Solana projects, but so did many other VCs. Nothing really unique about them there. But they did have um, uh, Sol tokens. Uh, what are they called? Uh, in uh, general, SPL tokens. SPL tokens. So yeah. these are tokens that run on Solana, and they were a key on an off-ramp into those, right? They were one of the only places that you could actually go from, like, dollars directly to these Solana-based tokens. Yeah. Whereas there are plenty of places to buy Solana, but yep. you'd have to, like, theoretically, like, go, like, Solana to then, like, maybe a Solana DEX, like, like or something to get those other tokens. So like there, there was a liquidity provision provided by FTX mm-hmm. that was probably helpful for growth there. It, it was. It was nice. I guess it was a nice to have infrastructure-wise that on-ramp into Solana. And even they had integrations with Solana wallets so you could deposit dollars and receive either USDC on Solana or a Solana token. Um, but again, the, the, these types of things are, are now kind of being replaced already. Like Coinbase now already supports uh, natively issued USDC on Solana. And a few Solana tokens as well, um, so yeah. I, I want to I want to call it essential, but yeah, they were probably one of the first yeah. to do that. And they also had um, some of the like wrapped Solana tokens were them, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, uh, was it the the Sol BTC? Yeah, and, was and actually e- Alameda, right? So right. that's more of an acute thing, but that obviously didn't go well. And, yeah. Well, I mean, their their collapse <laughs> meant that those tokens basically collapsed. The, they, the tokens collapsed, but I guess the good news is those products, so the wrapped ETH and the wrapped Bitcoin on Solana, weren't very popular to begin with. They weren't that big. They weren't, it wasn't like market cap wise, right? It wasn't even that much. It was tens of millions of dollars. Uh, again, not, not billions. Not, not billions. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, uh, and obviously Sam, like you said, had been a promoter, but um, mm-hmm. you know what? He hadn't been, you're right, actually. I mean, I don't recall him tweeting about Solana for quite a while. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's the, um, I don't know if that's the extent of it, but that's a lot of where this Solana, SBF, FTX sort of tie up comes from. Right. Um, and, and obviously Solana, you know, the market, I think punished Solana in the, in the, um, you know, weeks following FTX. What, what is there though in Solana that gets the state keeps you excited about it today? Yes. Um, and a lot of things excite me about Solana. I think it really boils down to this. They already have a lot of people using the blockchain and their scaling approach to me at least it makes a ton of sense and this scaling approach has been done in other industries that have nothing to do with blockchain which is relying on hardware and not necessarily doing a very convoluted approach of layers or modularity uh they they kind of make two bets one they could improve the protocol itself which is what the solana labs team is responsible for doing and what they have done at a very fast clip over the past year but then the other side of this is that even if the labs team did nothing, just over time, you're guaranteed to have performance increases in throughput because the hardware for the validators is at a high spec and hardware improves over time, especially GPUs, which they use for parallelization of state changes. 
that that trend has already been happening in AI, uh, and the Chat GPT is kind of an example of this, where it's it's not that sophisticated of a model. I mean, you could watch a one-hour YouTube lecture on how uh, LLMs work. It's really about them scaling it to a ton of hardware, spending tens of millions of dollars on hardware to train those models. That's why it's so impressive. So when you look at kind of what's happened in other industries, it, it seems logical to assume that this approach Solana is taking with high-spec validator hardware and relying on that to improve over time, you're kind of always going to improve over time too. And I think that's kind of a brilliant approach that more hardware-focused software developers like Anatoly Yakovenko uh, would, would it take? Interesting. So a different approach. I mean, you talked about layers of modularity. Uh, they, they, it is a very convoluted, I mean, you like to, I, I chuckle, not that it's bad. I mean, and first of all, I, I'm a big, I have long ter term been a big layered scaling approach mm -hmm. guy. Um, but like, you know, I chuckle at like, you know, Vitalik's like uh, flow chart of like ETH yeah. development. It's oh, like, yeah. oh my God. The merge purge. This thing's like, uh, so yeah, so it's like my head explodes just like, <laughs> you know, I get a migraine looking at it. Um, yeah. And again, no, no offense to that. I'm just saying <laughs> there is a meaningfully differentiated approach to blockchain design happening with Solana. It's not an EVM clone. In fact, right. it doesn't use the EVM at all. No. Um, it doesn't, you know, let's be real. I mean, the way I've described it before is that layered scaling is actually Bitcoin and Ethereum's approach. Yeah. With Bitcoin on a conservative end of that spectrum and ETH on a very accommodative side of that spectrum, literally right. redesigning some of the layer one to make it even better for layers, right, with like proto dang sharding and some of their their roadmap um but solana differentiated here not just yes. the reliance on hardware but also the focus on on um uh monolithic blockchain yes. yes um i think that makes it interesting just from a pure blockchain technology standpoint absolutely it does and i guess the big criticisms it's had historically um were, downtime the downtime and the outages right right and we we got to talk about that for a sec they seemingly have addressed these in a pretty um, I think interesting way in a way that has worked so far, which is localized fee markets. Right. If you look at something like Solana Compass and just look at transactions over time, and when there's spikes in demand, like the Bonk thing that happened. Bonk. We're going to talk about that yeah. in a second. I got to ask you about Bonk. <laughs> the, the chain was able to handle all the traffic, and if you needed to get your transaction processed, you could. You just paid a little bit more in the fee, and even that premium you pay in fees is still lower right. than pretty much every single layer two out there. So this was like. Um We've talked about this on prior episodes uh, mm -hmm. about about Solana and the fee market problem and how yeah. um, this is one of the big uh, value props for Solana has always been that the fees were extremely low or even non-existent. Yes. Um, but of course, then critics had said, well, fees are how you protect against civil resistance, or how you make it civil resistant, how you protect, pre prevent spam. Yes. Um, and uh, and most of the times when it had gone down, it really sometimes was directly spam. Yep. Other times it was like a big drop, a big sure. giant spike in activity. Um, and we're like, oh, they just showed up to blockchain and they're here to fix it. Like they're going to have to add fees. And but if they add fees, doesn't that under like a, fee, a genuine fee market? Doesn't that undercut the whole thing? And so what if they don't, what is local fee market? What does that yeah. mean? Is that not, that's not fees for all transactions? Um, so, so every transaction has a fee. The thing that makes Solana interesting is that the fee is extremely small. It was like 0. 0. 0.00015. But uh, was that fixed? Yeah, it was, it was basically fixed. Right. So yes, no fee market, fee. but still a fee. Right. And so what they did with this software change with fee markets um, is they allowed you to kind of pay a premium over that base fee to have your transaction prioritized. It's called a priority fee. Yep. And so if you had a very urgent transaction, you can express that urgency with an additional fee, 
but that additional fee is still very low. And I think this detail is very important. It gets lost on a lot of people who say, oh, you know, Solana capitulated and they added fee markets. Okay, they added fee markets, but they had so much headroom with yeah. how low the fee already was. It's still the cheapest blockchain by far. So is it, though, a fee market for all types of transactions or what's the local part of that? Right, right. So uh, the local part just means like what is the kind of data you're trying to manipulate on chains. So if it's like an NFT mint, that would cost more than if it was a simple transfer from so one like a, to another. They call them the smart contracts or whatever they call programs, right? Yes, Solana. yes. So it's like a program by program fee market? Is that the yeah, idea? Yeah, it's really just based on the amount of, uh, they call it compute units that the transaction requires. Then you will, if it requires more compute units, then you have to pay a higher premium yeah. over the base fee to get included. It does sound like, that you mentioned this, that they did kind of capitulate and add fee markets. So here's the thing. They didn't add a mempool, though. And I think that's the Okay, so there's no transaction. There's no queue. There's no queue, right? Interesting. It's just reordering the transactions to get processed by the validators. And Solana doesn't believe that mempools scale. That's why they don't have one. That's they interesting. Don't plan so, to okay, so one. that is, you're right. That would be the, the full capitulation. We mempool plus fee market, which would basically make it look like every other major blockchain yeah. that has something like that. Yeah. So they haven't done that yet. But I, I you must made the point, frankly, that, dude, if they have to, they could. They the could. whole point here is like, they're, they're, <laughs> why do it when they don't have to yet? And they don't want yeah. to, but like they, they can always do, um, make changes. But that you're saying this this change um, has has worked. I mean, has, has there been downtime? No. When was last downtime? Like briefly this last so, summer, like over like six months ago? And, and let's also remember the downtime from this past summer or fall, I forget the exact date, that yeah. had nothing to do with spam. That was a kind of an obscure bug at like the, so at just the code, code of the validator. Yeah, yeah, and th yeah, that's been patched, and yeah, yeah, yeah. that'll also get reduced as more validator clients get used, like Fire Dancer, which is right, which up. is uh, the Jump Crypto's right, right. client. They made a whole client, right from scratch using C I believe. Interesting. Very, okay, Let, yeah, this, is, this is very interesting. So we, we get it. You like the tech too. I mean, I, I'm interested <laughs> in the tech. Yeah. Differentiation here as well. It's it's the reason I think. Solana's interesting, but let's talk about what its adoption a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you're wearing a Ute sweatshirt. Isn't this the uh, D-Gods, D-Labs? Uh, <laughs> this is like one of the most popular NFTs on yeah. Solana, NFT collections. Right, right. But they moved, right? They got paid by Polygon to move to... Do we know that they got paid? Maybe I don't yeah, know no, that. They, they confirmed it was a okay. $3 million grant, grant. Uh, to D-Labs, I believe. So they're going to move... Yeah, they're to planning. This, to Polygon. They haven't yet. No, no. So th this is going to take a lot of work. I know. And right. let's talk about that in a second. But but step back for a minute because sure. the NFT markets on Solana are one of the most vibrant they things are. on Solana. Yeah. But also Solana is like – I think you did a uh, – you had a chart recently in, in, a, in a report mm -hmm. or in our newsletter. I can't recall. But that 12% of yeah. all NFT trading volume is on Solana. Yes. And that's the second behind ETH. Behind ETH, and it's like three, four times more than the next yeah. challenger. So it's so Solana's a player as an L1 in yeah. the NFT ecosystem. Um that's, that's notable. Oh, absolutely. And but but Utes though and D Gods, those are the biggest that's the biggest like collection, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. leaving. They're leaving. Um so the story with that is Frank, who's the creator of D Labs, which is manages D Gods and Utes. He's probably the most famous non-Ethereum NFT collection. I don't want to say owner, but like creator, I guess. And so he's very high ambitions, wants to challenge Yuga Labs. And so he sees the only place for growth as being on Ethereum and I guess Ethereum adjacent, which is Polygon. So D-Gods moving to ETH and Utes will move to Polygon. Oh, God. D-Gods goes right to ETH L1. Goes ETH mainnet. Yeah. Interesting. Um, does that like harm the NFT story on Solana in general? or? It's so... It, I. 
I would be lying to, if I didn't say it was bad. Like, it's definitely bad. Um, but it seems like, especially with what happened with Bonk, that the NFT community in Solana is much bigger and more vibrant than these two collections. Right. Uh, but it does beg the question, you know, how will Polygon fare over time? Will ETH be able to just kind of dominate NFTs? It as makes they you have? wonder if, like, you grow big enough on, you know, Tezos or yeah. Solana, which both have, yes. you know, yes. is it sort of like training wheels and then you become big <laughs> and then you go to ETH? I mean, and if so, like, that's not great for those other ecosystems. No. It's not It's not inherently terrible. I don't think so, no. But it's it kind of, it, it positions, like, a Solana or an Alt L1 as... Well, it solidifies them as an alt L1. Like I said, as training wheels before you hit the big leagues and go to ETH. <laughs> that right? is actually a pretty good analogy. And you're right. It's not just Solana. Like now Tezos generative artists are it's probably big, thinking pretty about big market. Very big. I have a few of them and they're beautiful and they're cheap. They're, there's, you can get them for like 10 bucks, like some really top collections. Yeah. Uh, they must be wondering if I move to ETH, will I make more money? I mean, it's like the ETH premium that people talk about in NFT communities. Right. Uh, it makes you wonder, like, will they everyone just eventually ditch once they hit escape velocity? It uh, makes you wonder. Yeah. The alt layer one. All right, Bonk, before we run out yeah. of time here. So <laughs> Bonk was what, a dog coin airdrop to NFT holders on Solana? Yeah. So so Bonk, it was created by a small team of developers, and they were upset with, you know, the decline of Solana post FTX. And so they said, hey, let's airdrop 50% of this meme coin to existing holders of Solana NFTs to artists that are exclusive to Solana and to like early community members and, and proponents and, and, and other stakeholders. So everyone went on chain to collect it. Yeah. And it, it generated a ton of excitement and activity. On-chain activity. Um, and and it, it coincided, I think it was shortly after Vitalik had a, a favorable yeah. tweet about Solana. That's right. Saying, you know, like, I forget what it was. I don't know much about it, but like, seems like a lot of people like it and like I'm rooting for them or something. Yeah, right? yeah. It was a positive tweet. It was a positive tweet and 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 soul activity and, and prices of Solana and the Solana ecosystem stuff rose on this. Exactly, yeah. But then like, this is just a useless meme token, right? Like there's no purpose to it. <laughs> And Currently, yeah. When they released it, the website was one page with a couple of buttons. Uh, now it's interesting you say there's actually more on chain to do in Bonk than there is in Doge or shit. What are they doing? Well, that's true. I mean, Doge. Let's be real. It's like <laughs> it's like a Bitcoin Litecoin fork. You can't really yeah. do anything with it. Um, and right. I mean, Shiba. Who knows what? I'm, let's we're not going into right, Shiba right, right. now. <laughs> <laughs> but but like. Um, did so it was fifty percent of the supply. What's the story here? I mean, is where's the rest of the supply? Yeah, fifty um, percent was airdropped, and fifty percent. You know, that's a good question. Exactly where? Because I read maybe that like the 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 creators may have burned their allocation. It, it's a very small. Uh, they we only have had five percent. Yeah, they only. But I think they may have burned it. They burned again. So they did they, burn it. They burned it. But people are also remember like early participants, not the developers, have 20%, and that was not burned. So they, there's still a lot so of insider a, holding. St it's not a, okay, so it's not a perfect fair launch at all. It's um, not. It's not. Fair enough. Okay, that's and what I was wondering There's about. a lot of criticisms early on for this exact reason. Now, right. granted, a lot of people made good returns on Bonk. It went up a ton during that two-week period. It's come down a lot, too. Sure, but, sure, sure. But... Um, well, okay, very interesting. Um, I, I, like I said, you know, when we talk about the layer, layer uh, blockchain, I think, again, from a blockchain technology standpoint, I really mm -hmm. look at it as layers monolithic where Solana is the iconic player and is differentiated. Um, and then I guess we would say like, um, I don't know if it's maybe app chains, right? So you have like right. Cosmos and Avalanche yep. and theoretically Polkadot and, sure. and and I'm not sure what others, but outside of that, layers, monolithic and app chains scaling. Yep. I don't really know of another 
And maybe, I don't know where we would put Aptos and Sui exactly in here at some point. Do they go into monolithic, by the way, maybe? Yeah, they're kind of, they're monolithic, but very different flavor. Right, different tech, yeah. but maybe it yeah. goes in a monolithic bucket. But right, right, um, right. thanks for giving us the update, Saul, on Solana. And uh, we'll, we'll also have you back. We, there's a lot more to talk about in the NFT world. I know you're working on some new research, so we'll, yep. we'll get you back on there to talk about NFTs generally. Awesome. Sounds good. That's it for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests, as always, Bimnetta BB from Galaxy Trading and Charles Yu and Saul Kadir from Galaxy Research. Um, and reach out to us, as always. We love to hear from you all. Um, at research at galaxy.com. Send us an email. Check out our content, uh, galaxy.com slash research. Sign up for our weekly newsletter, gdr.email, um, or just go to galaxy.com slash research to do that. Um, everyone have a great and happy and safe weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.